Thanks so much for those readings. Um, please keep your Bibles with you. We're going to be uh, uh, looking at Malachi together and on top of that we'll also be looking at a couple of other passages uh, later on in the talk, so I encourage you to keep your Bibles with you. Uh, let me pray. Our loving Father, as we come to your word uh, this morning, please remind us of how good you are and how just you are and strengthen our hearts as we reflect upon your astounding compassion and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, what makes you groan? What are the sorts of things that when you reflect upon them, whether they're the attitudes or behaviours or, or, or opinions that just have you wanting to hold your temple like this and go, just stop it. You know, that kind of, we've, we've all got our buttons, don't we? The things that continually try our patience and make us just go, just, no, no, just zip it. Please just stop. Well, in keeping with the uh, very personal style of Malachi, God's going to tell us what makes him go, just, just stop. Just stop that right now. What makes him groan with frustration? So what is it? What is it that has God metaphorically rolling his eyes and shaking his head about Israel and going, how can they say this stuff? What's fatiguing God, testing his patience? Well, to put it succinctly, it's a whinge. A big, self-righteous, scarily ignorant whinge. And have a look at verse 17, because that's where you'll find it. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? So the Jews of Malachi's time, they've got two complaints. Actually, they're more than complaints. They're actually slights against God's character. And the first is stunning. Look at it again. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Literally, in, in them, he delights. God delights in those that do evil, is what they're saying. They're saying that God is looking with favour on those that, on the bad guys. God's on the side of the bad guys. Now, that is a stunning accusation. It would appear that some of them are looking around at those that they believe to be wicked, and they don't see them facing any consequences. They themselves don't seem to be enjoying God's favour. They've certainly been complaining about that already. But these other bad people, maybe they're the other nations around them, maybe there are people within the nation that just seem to be getting away with stuff, but they seem to be getting along nicely. But instead of doing what they should have done and just had a little bit of a look in the mirror and reflect upon their own behaviour, which might have actually produced some answers for them, they see the problem is God's problem and they're starting to get sulky. You know, it's not as if they were the first people ever to think this way. In fact, a guy called Asaph, who is the writer of Psalm 73, he struggled with the same issue. If the wicked seem to succeed, then he was wrestling with, why do I bother trying to do the right thing? Have you ever resonated with that? Um, have a look at this, a couple of verses here from Psalm 73. He begins where he will end up concluding the psalm, and he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those that are pure in heart. 
That's the conclusion he comes to. But he wrestles with something else first. He said, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Then later on he says, this is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Does it ever trouble you deeply? Do you sympathise with Asaph? Because it's easy, isn't it, to look out of the world and, and see those who are unscrupulous and selfish and hedonistic, living in wealth and luxury, and they always seem to land on their feet when anything happens, while good people that we know seem to hit one hardship after another hardship, and we think, where's God in all of this? It just doesn't seem fair. But for the people in Malachi's time, things have moved a little bit further than Asaph's troubles. We actually see that they've gone to the point where contempt for God has started to settle in. Their hearts have started to harden towards him and now they're even questioning whether he even cares about good and evil at all. And they're voicing those concerns out loud. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he delights in them. It's like they're they're saying to God, "Your, your moral compass is always pointing south. Your assessment of right and wrong seem to be so skewed, skewed, it seems to be the opposite of what it should be. God's delighting in the ones doing evil. They're the ones that are prospering. They're the ones that don't seem to be facing any consequences. Now, of course, Israel's actually being sarcastic here. Israel actually know. They know the covenant. They know the laws of Moses. God's word is their moral heritage that they're now saying is the way they're thinking. Their problem is, is they don't believe that God's sticking by his own laws. They're they're cynically calling God out because they go, you're not enforcing the covenant that seems to matter so much to you because look at the wicked. Notice though that it's the perspective of people who seem to be fairly confident that they themselves are good. Israel's speaking like their moral compass is beautifully tuned. More tuned, in fact, than God's is. And once you start talking that way, you start to move into breathtakingly arrogant territory when you start deciding that you know better about good and evil than God does. Well, their second accusation is probably the heart of really what the issue is for them. Where is the God of justice? If God cares so much about good and evil, then why isn't he intervening? Why isn't he stepping in to stop evil happening? Because that's what he said he'd do in the covenant. He said he'd curse those that that do wickedness. They'll be under his curse. Well, we're looking around and we're going, where is this curse? Why aren't we seeing the good rewarded for their goodness and the guilty punished for their badness? Do you, again, do you ever find yourself wondering the same sorts of things? It is one of the more common things that you'll hear expressed these days. You know, there's a line from an old Savage Garden song, showing myself to be 
where were they, 90s or early noughties? Anyway, I'm not sure. But th- 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 there's a, a line in one of their songs that says, I believe in karma, what you give is what you get returned. And that's the kind of, yeah, yeah, that seems fair. That's justice, right? If, if you do good stuff, good stuff should happen to you. That's morally just. And if you do bad stuff, bad stuff should happen to you. That's what I believe because I'm morally upright. That's the way they think the world should work, according to popular morality anyway. Here's the thing, though, is that the good always seems to be conveniently defined by what I and my friends like to do. And evil tends to be what I and my friends find objectionable. And God should be acting on my timetable and according to my morality. And if he doesn't, I'm going to call him out on it. It's actually one of the more common arguments that gets put against the existence of God. That a good or powerful God cannot exist at the same time as evil and suffering. Because if he was good and all powerful, he would deal with the sickness and the suffering and the, and the evil. He'd do something about it. He hasn't, therefore he's not there. But apart from the selectivity that I mentioned earlier, it also has got a rather large blind spot. Because our moral sensitivities all seem to revolve around us. And they rarely seem to be tuned to whether we're doing something else. And that is loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Which Jesus actually says is the first and the greatest commandment. And that never seems to come in on our thoughts of karma and you give what you get returned. You see, this moral self-righteousness on Israel's part is, is in particular unaware, unself-aware. Because think about what we know about these people from what we've already looked at in Malachi. What do we know about them? Well, they've been breaking the covenant left, right and centre. They've failed to honour God. They've profaned his altar with their unclean sacrifices. The priests have been failing to teach his word and pass on the knowledge of God and his covenant to his people. They're marrying women that follow follow false gods. They're jeopardising the faith of their children. They're divorcing one another with casual and hurtful abandon. And then here they are. They've got the hide to self-righteously accuse God of failing to have a care for right and wrong. No wonder God is going, are you kidding me? Are you seriously trying to put this stuff onto me, are you? Well, God in his weariness and frustration says, are you seriously going to criticise me for not ruthlessly enforcing my covenant? Well, if that's what you want, look out and listen up. Now, it's not in the NIV there, but verse 1 of chapter 3 begins with the word, Behold me. Watch me, in other words. And the word turns up twice. And, and the you in the verse is particularly emphatic. So let me, I've kind of tried to reflect that in the, in the verse on the screen. Behold me. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire... Behold, the one who will come, says the Lord Almighty. He says, you want me to show up and enforce justice? Oh, I'll show up. Just watch. Because this is what's going to happen. 
First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to send a messenger to kind of give you the warning that I'm on my way. Now, there's a play on words here because the word for my messenger is actually Malachi. That's what Malachi means, my messenger. And it's also the word that gets translated in other contexts as my angel. God is going to send one who will speak and act for him. And God says, he's going to get the place ready for me. Now, the phrase prepare the way, it comes with a connotation of clearing away obstacles. You know, kind of like you, you can imagine that some sort of VIP is arriving and then he sends out his, um, his, the Secret Service bodyguard to go out before him and clear away any clutter, any roadblocks, any people that are presuming to get in the way of the one that they are preparing you for. They're clearing the roadway so that they just can drive straight with their motorcade. It kind of makes you wonder what God is saying needs to be cleared away. What's getting in the way of God's arrival? Well, he will prepare the way before me. So in other words, following the one who prepares the way, God himself is going to turn up. And he's going to pointedly address both of Israel's whinges. He deals with the second one first. Where is the God of justice? Remember how they're asking that? Well, God tells you, I'll tell you exactly where he is. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking is going to come to his temple. Notice it's not their temple, his temple. That's where the God of justice is going to turn up first. That's where he's going to begin his inspection. And what's the God of justice going to use for his scales to make that assessment, do you think? Well, his covenant, of course. Remember their other complaint? All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he delights in them. They believe that God was favouring covenant breakers and neglecting to punish them. Well, God says very ironically, well, if that's what you're concerned about, I've got some good news for you. Because the Lord that you're seeking, the God of justice, is the messenger of that covenant that you claim to delight in so much. And he's going to come to his temple. And he's going to have a look around and he's going to see what's going on there. And then he's going to take out his covenant and he's going to look at it next to it and then he's going to start doing some judging. And the word for suddenly there is particularly concerning or it should have been for those that listen to it because it's the word that normally gets attached to when you're describing a calamity or a terror that quickly falls upon those who are unsuspecting. Suddenly, boom. It's kind of like we've moved from the groan and the eye roll of the beginning of this verse to a smile. But it's not the kind of smile that makes you relax. It's the kind of ominous smile. You know, the sort that suggests that you've badly misread a situation and that there is an unpleasant surprise in store. But before we move on to what is going to happen, we need to think through a tricky aspect of this passage for starters. Who exactly is the messenger? At the beginning, the messenger seems to be someone who's clearly distinct from God himself. So he says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. So it's, it's clearly saying that the one that follows the messenger will be the Lord whose temple it is, the God of justice, that can only talk, be talking about God. 
So that's nice and clear, isn't it? You've got a messenger and then you've got God turning up. But then in the second half of that verse, have a look at that, things start to blur a little bit. Because the Lord whose temple it is, is also the messenger of the covenant whom you desire. God's saying, he's the messenger of the covenant, of his covenant. And the action that follows in verses 2 to 5 confirms that it is God because of what he's going to do. So the messenger in the first part of the verse seems to not be God, and the messenger in the second part of the verse seems very much to be God. What's going on? What's well, almost that disguised or hidden away in these verses are two messengers. One who perhaps we could describe as a small m messenger, who will be the messenger whose message is that the Lord's coming, preparing for his arrival. And then you're going to get the capital M messenger, the divine messenger of the covenant itself that is turning up to enforce it. And in the passing of time, when Malachi's words is fulfilled, that is exactly what we are going to see is taking place. But we're going to have a look at that a little later. Well, verse 1 finishes with the Lord Almighty, Yahweh of armies, saying, Behold the one who is coming. Watch out for him. You know the expression, be careful what you wish for? We use it to warn people that, might see, that um, what might seem desirable in our imaginings may not be as wonderful in real life, right? So, for instance, like the countless numbers of people who, who dream about being rich and famous or winning the lottery, imagining all of the things that they would do with their lives if they had all of this. But then if they happen to, in their life, end up with all of that, many of them wish they never did. They notice the way everyone seems to treat them differently, seems to you know, use them for their own advantage and just see them as a cash cow or some sort of way of leveraging their own reputation. They, they, they endure the stress of having to keep on hold of that fame and continue to make sure their name is out there, to continue to hold on to the fortune that they've got. And many of them long for the simple life of just being anonymous and being able to just go down to the shops without anyone crowding around you. Now it's become harder in the era of social media. Do you know that Europe's youngest ever lottery winner said, I thought that it would make my life ten times better, but it's made it ten times worse. It's not that money and possessions are inherently bad, but having an overwhelming amount of it did not give her the life that she'd imagined. Well, justice is a good thing. But wanting God to intervene now and enforce it might bring more than we imagine from our naively self-righteous perspective. And that is what God wants to stress to Israel. Be careful what you wish for if you want me to come and judge. When he comes to enforce his covenant, he's going to come first, not to the dodgy side streets, back streets of Jerusalem. He'll get there, but not first. First, he's going to go to the temple. 
to the, to the focal point, the heart of the covenant relationship with his people. That's where the covenant enforcement's going to begin. Look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Because he will be like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's soap. In other words, when God comes to judge, he's going to clean house. Whatever is not pure is going to be scorched away like slag in a refinery. Whatever is unclean will be scoured off with caustic soap and there will be no exceptions. When the Lord himself comes, who can endure that untouched? God's saying nobody. And when he appears, who's going to stand proudly or boastfully before him? Nobody. And certainly not in a place where his covenant's been neglected, where they're failing to teach his word, where they're defiling his sacrifices. See, in thinking that God doesn't care, they couldn't be more wrong. You see, the God of justice is perfectly just and thoroughly just. And that means that when he does act, he is going to hold all sin to account, not just the bits that you might want him to deal with. Those that think their sense of righteousness was stronger than his and are trying to shame God into judging that lot over there need to be very careful what they wish for. And yet here's another thing. As we've seen a number of times already in Malachi, even in the promise and the warning of judgment, did you notice the promise of restoration in there? Did you see the grace of God? God doesn't just start his punish, his judgment at the temple because that's where everything was at its worst. But because the temple is where forgiveness of sin takes place. It's where atonement happens for wrongdoing it's the place of the mercy seat and so God's whole point in cleansing the temple first is that it might enable right worship to happen once again to be renewed to be enjoyed that righteous offerings might be presented upon his altar and that he might smile upon his people that's why he's doing the temple first. That's why he's going to clean the priests first. Look at verse 3 and 4. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. God delights in forgiveness more than judgment. But having said that, he does have his eye on the wicked. His graciousness, his patience, shouldn't be understood or interpreted as moral blindness or apathy or unwillingness to act. He does not delight in the wicked at all. But as he did with those that were discarding their wives in the previous chapter we were looking at, he is a witness to his covenant, to all covenant breaking, however and whatever and by whomever it might be taking place. When he comes, in other words, no one is going to get away with anything. Everyone will stand in the dock. 
and he will judge the whole breadth of covenant breaking. And that's what you see in verse 5. It's like, it's like a bit of a grab bag sample of things that God says God's people weren't to do. Look what he says there. So I will come to put you on trial and I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, you know, wrong religion sort of thing, adulterers and perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who they're meant to be looking after, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. We need to understand that if there's one thing that God cannot abide, and that is self-righteousness. God's people do not stand in judgment over him. I will come to put you on trial is literally, and I will come near to you for judgment. I'm coming. And I'm going to come right up close. And I will be very quick when I do to testify to whatever it is that I see that is a transgression of my law. Anyone who fails to fear and reverence me as they should will be held to account when I come to judge. Now, are you starting to understand God's weariness with their complaint? The burden of his frustration with Israel. They were thinking that they're so righteous and accusing God of siding with evil when they themselves deserved his judgment and didn't realise that they were taking for granted the fact that he was being merciful to them. He's like going, oh. The arrogance of thinking that their thinking was more lofty and moral and wise than God's. They'd neglected to ponder these profound words of Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The reality is, however, that as much as you might go, yeah, I get why God's weary. No, not yet. There's actually a much deeper truth behind the weariness that God feels here. A truth that we need to move further beyond Malachi to fully comprehend. We need to go ahead to the events that Malachi is foretelling if we want to understand exactly how burdensome this attitude is to God. Because he knows what's coming and what he is going to do. Nearly 500 years later, that first messenger is going to step onto the scene. Now, if you've got your Bibles with you, um, you can leave Malachi behind. Um, move up to Mark. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. Feel free. We're going to have to look at a few verses there. Um, so, Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. Do we have a page number for anyone that's found that? 1424. Thank you. Have a listen to this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, 
preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. See, what Mark has done is he's combined Malachi's verse with another promise of this same forerunning messenger from Isaiah, and he's combined them together. But do you see the idea is there? The message, he's preparing them. He's preparing them by baptising, by, by giving them a baptism of repentance, saying, turn back to God. That's the way you prepare for him coming. Because one who is coming after me, I can't even touch his dirty feet. I'm, I'm going to wash you with water, but he's going to cleanse you from the inside with his Holy Spirit. And of course, he's talking about Jesus. It's the beginning of the good news of Jesus. And you know when Jesus arrived triumphantly in Jerusalem, even as people pulled out the palm branches and laid their cloaks on the ground for his donkey to walk over and were crying out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Even as they were calling those words out, Jesus, the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant, weeps. Look at Luke 19. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. And the next thing that he does is he goes into the temple and he cleanses it from the corruption within, driving out the money changers. And over the next week, he would day by day go to that temple and teach God's law as it should have been taught. He would also proclaim God's judgment upon the priests and upon the teachers of the law who had so tragically failed in their responsibility and who made the self-righteous hypocrisy of the men of Malachi's time look like amateur hour. But notice what he said outside those walls. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. You know, later that week, in an upper room with his disciples, Jesus shared the Passover meal, the meal of the old covenant. And this is what he said in Luke 22. And he took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And the next day, he would die on a cross. And he would bear God's wrath for every act of evil, every broken covenant action and thought and attitude of his people. 
God came near to them, right up close, for judgment. By becoming a man, the messenger of his own covenant, and he bore the judgment of their covenant breaking himself. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, just like he promised in Malachi, God's first act of judgment was to enable the means for his forgiveness and grace to be shown to those sinners that turned from their sin and came back to him in repentance and faith and asked for his mercy. That's the righteousness of God. But what did the men and women of Malachi's time accuse God of? All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. He's pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? Now he's starting to feel why God might be wearied by that. When he knew what he was going to send his son to do. When he knew about the embodiment of his judgment that he himself would take the punishment that they could get off and enjoy his mercy instead. And they're saying, you don't care? You don't care about right or wrong? You don't care about good? You're not going to judge wickedness? And he himself is going to die for them? No wonder it wearied him. Do you see the disgraceful, sickening ignorance of human self-righteousness? that dares arrogate itself against the goodness of God. And believe me, brothers and sisters, we live in an increasingly self-righteous society, don't we? You read Peter Fitzsimons' articles lately? The, the bleatings of, of Dawkins? Just the general tone of, you Christians don't know... You're actually wicked. Everything that your God says in the Bible is bad. God is morally inferior to our enlightened society. Brothers and sisters, we must not let that arrogance and that offensive ignorance about the God that you know, the good God that you know, you know how good he is. Please do not let that arrogance creep into our attitudes or cause us to question his goodness or the rightness of his word. Friends, that is where justice begins. It begins with my sin and your sin and the sin of every Christian being met, being paid for with the full force of God's wrath in Christ at the cross. Not one sin left unpunished, but it's all faced by Jesus for us. And that is why we have no fear of God's judgment anymore. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sin from us, that's why we have peace with God. Because it's all been paid for.
And for that, God deserves our undying love. You see, judgment actually begins with us, with those who ask Jesus to face that judgment for us. But Peter makes an observation in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, For it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, the implications of Peter's words here must hit home to us. Christ will return. And when he does, that judgment will be final and absolutely thorough. Do you know, later Peter wrote what was read to us earlier from 2 Peter in language that I think is very reminiscent of Malachi. Let me read to you apart from it again, verses 8 to 10. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, the scoffing the people were having about where is he, when's he going to judge? He's not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, what is he? He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. There's the God of justice. When do you want God to judge your sin? Every single one of you must ask this question of yourself. When do you want God to judge your sin? At the cross or at Christ's return? When God drew near the first time, when he draws near the second because the God of justice has come and he will come again. The thing is, God is just and he's not going to compromise that justice. But he is also the God of mercy. And what is happening now, and as it was in Malachi's time, is God is graciously holding back, holding back, holding back, waiting, giving time, giving opportunity. Now is the time to respond to the mercy of God in Christ if you haven't done it. Now is the time to plead for others to respond to the mercy of God in Christ. Let us not be those who weary the Lord with our words, but let us be those that praise him and adore him and proclaim him to the world that they might know the mercy of God and not face his judgment. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the grace that you have shown to us in Jesus. We know we don't deserve it. But Lord, we are thankful. Um, Father, please help us to live as those who have been forgiven, to rejoice in the opportunity that we can now offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. And Father, please give us the boldness, the love for others, the love for your name that will call us to proclaim the glory of the Lord Jesus to the world and his mercy to them. And we pray that you might grow your kingdom through that proclamation. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.